Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? Xavier Katana here with another home run episode. This is Mrs. Elizabeth Lesser. She is the founder of the Omega Institute and author of her new book, Marrow, A Love Story. All I can say about this conversation is, wow, uh, it felt like speaking to a long lost old friend that I, I hadn't seen or heard from in, in a long time. And it, the, the conversation flowed so seamlessly and there's a vibe or a, a presence that Elizabeth has that you feel immediately and it, it's just a calming resonance that hopefully translates through this this recording please pick up a copy of her book marrow a love story it is truly a great read find us on facebook twitter youtube all at the human xp we survive on listener support so get to the slash donate to help us keep this machine oiled pay for bandwidth server costs show us your support if you value what we're doing here put your money where your mouth is or your ears are but either way uh without much further ado here is one of the best episodes we've done hands down mrs elizabeth lesser thank you guys so much for listening the human experiences in session our guest today is mrs elizabeth lesser elizabeth welcome to hxp thank you thanks for having me elizabeth i i admire your work so much starting from co-founding the omega institute in 1977 you have such a wide history and can you kind of lay the foundation for anyone who may not know who you are please okay well that's what i've been trying to figure out my whole life who am i <laughs> um <laughs> but what i've done what I've done, as opposed to who I am, is, um, well, very young, in my early 20s. Um, a bunch of us were studying with a spiritual teacher. It was that time in American history when um, everything was in flux, and, you know, politically and socially. And it was also the time when these gurus from the East were washing up on the shores of America. And um, I was raised in an atheist intellectual family. And all I ever wanted was, as a kid was to have a spiritual life. I don't know where it came from, but when those gurus started making it to the cover of Time magazine and I was still in high school, I was like, I want one of them. And I went to college and, but what I really wanted to do was to find a spiritual teacher. And when I was 19, I did. And he was an amazing man with like a Renaissance kind of man, an Eastern teacher, but a 
Western thinker as well. And it was his idea to start a school of holistic studies. And a lot of what we were interested in at that time was way at the fringe of American culture, things like yoga and meditation and food as medicine and natural foods and alternative healing, things that are very much part of American culture now, Western culture, um, but weren't then. And Mm. that was his idea. And he put myself and my ex-husband in charge of starting this school. And we had no idea that Omega Institute, as we called it, would turn into what it is today. Um, 30,000 people come every year to our workshops and trainings and Um, We offer like a very wide array of workshops to people from all over the world. We didn't know that that's what we'd be starting then, but that is what ended up happening. Yeah, Omega Institute is so huge from Maya Angelou to Deepak Chopra to Ram Dass to Eckhart Tolle. There's so many visionaries that are kind of part of what you're doing. And I'm just digging right in here. I mean, if there's if there's one specific thing that kind of defines you through all of your hurdles and with with setting up this this sort of institute and uh, the books you've written. I mean, you're a best-selling author, and just everything that you've done in your life. What would you say is the, would be the defining moment of of that? You know, some people have have an awakening in a defining moment, like you mentioned Eckhart Tolle, and people who say like I woke up and then I was enlightened. That's <laughs> I I I have not had that experience. Um, I. I would say the defining experience for me, which is still going on, is that um, we are all this, we are all the same. We are so similar. People will say to me, "What's it like being around all those great spiritual teachers and scientists and artists and famous people?" And oh my God, you must have met such amazing people. And and. I forever, even when I was 21 years old and starting Omega and even becoming a best-selling author, my experience has always been everyone, even the wisest among us, the Dalai Lama and the Eckhart Tolle's and whomever, we're all the same. Everyone struggles. Everyone gets confused. No one is nice and good all the time. We get up. We We vow that we're going to put into practice the wisdom we know, and we fail, and we try again. And I've learned this by being around people whom others put on pedestals. And I've seen them fall, and I've seen their paradoxes and inconsistencies. And what it's given me is a a great sense of compassion toward myself for my imperfections and toward other people. I I am not after perfection. I'm after authenticity. And that's what I value in people. And I think that is what I have learned over my years of being a seeker. I think more and more authenticity seems to be the cur- the current kind of currency. I mean, without authenticity, what do we really what do we really have? And why are we doing it? Who are we, who are we trying to impress? And what do you get after you've impressed other people? You're still left with your life and yourself. Elizabeth, you've written 
Marrow, this new book, which which actually details your your actual help of your you were helping your sister by donating marrow to her. And this affected you on both a a spiritual level and a and a physical level. I mean, can you tell us more about this? Yes. My younger sister, I come from a family of four girls, and the sister right next to me, very close in age, her name is Maggie. Um, had gotten seven years previously a virulent strain of lymphoma and she'd gone into remission for seven years but then it came back and when a cancer comes back as you all probably know it's very hard to treat it again and so this time she needed a bone marrow transplant and uh, siblings are the best bet for a tissue match so all the siblings got tested and we were very surprised when it turned out that the person who tested a perfect match was me. Mm. And I was surprised because my sister Maggie and I were very different kinds of people. And we loved each other. But we also had a, you know, kind of a rich, typical sibling history of, of being friends and being strangers and betraying each other and loving each other and the, the whole thing that siblings go through. And um, when I studied up on what it meant to be a bone marrow donor and to be a bone marrow recipient, um, I, I was intrigued to read in a lot of the research that after my sister, if, if indeed she did survive the chemotherapy treatment um, in order to be prepared for the bone marrow transplant, she still would have a long recovery and with lots of dangers. And the biggest danger would be if she would reject my bone marrow once it was transplanted in, or maybe my bone marrow would attack her, attack and rejection, rejection mm-hmm. and attack. These are the two words that come up in a lot of the literature. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that sounds familiar. Um, especially with sisters and siblings, like that's what we've done our whole life with each other. We've either rejected each other or attacked. And I thought, I wonder if we could do some kind of you know, ritual or therapy or something where we would relive our childhood together and visit how we rejected or attacked each other and like put it aside and work through it and walk into a field of unconditional love and maybe we could teach ourselves to do the same thing once they'd been transplanted. And I, I had to be careful recommending this to my sister because she's not like me and didn't have the same interests and the same compulsion to go deep all the time. She had sort of a bemused attitude about my work and books. But she was very, very into this idea. And so we did over the course of many months, what we called our soul marrow transplant. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about this, this soul marrow transplant. How did, I mean, what, and what was involved in this as, as you kind of opened up to each other? Well, um, well, first of all, I'll just tell you what I mean by soul, because it's kind of a loaded word. Um, well, it was for my sister. I had explained to her what I meant. Um, you know, the the ancient Greeks uh, believed that every human being came into life as a baby with something they called the genius, 
which um, was like this indwelling spirit, a guide almost, uh, that if you got in touch with it, and especially if your parents and your school, your culture helped you like determine, oh, that's, that's his genius. He's like this. Let's help that person discover exactly who he is, not who we think he should be or the other siblings are like or, or the culture needs like, oh, let's, let's promote the indwelling genius. And that's the way I relate to the word soul. Like we each come in with this shining seed of who we are. And then uh, parents try to help us fit in, try to make us fit in, schools do, siblings do, and layer by layer we cover the soul, the authenticity, the authentic seed of who we are. And, um, and then we relate to each other, kind of surface to surface. So uh, this, our soul marrow transplant, the, what my sister and I did with the help of a therapist, was we, we tried to show each other exactly who we were. And that included how we hurt each other and what we really had been thinking, why we did some of the things we did. You know, for example, there were quite a few years in our young adulthood when my sister rejected me and mm-hmm. I couldn't be close with her. And I never knew what it was, but I never bothered to ask her either. You know, the way we just kind of build up these stories, believe them and never check them out. And as it turned out, her reason for doing that was such a painful one for her. It really had nothing to do with me. It had more to do with her marriage and what her husband wanted her to do. But she never told me that. I never told her my hurt. And what was so amazing about our experience was, and this was made easier in a way because of the life and death nature of what we were doing, was that all she had to say was, oh my God, I didn't know you were hurt. This is why I did it. And just hearing that, everything disappeared. All the years of pain and rejection disappeared. And there we were together, like our souls intact, relating to each other soul to soul. So that's what we called our soul marrow transplant And so by the time we went into the bone marrow transplant, we felt really ready to give and receive. Interesting. So I just want to read um, a small passage from from your book. It's part of your your field notes. Well, the field notes are my sister's words. The field notes are my sister. When I started writing the book, you know, memoirs were a very dicey, risky form to write. And... In this case, it was so much about my sister. I wanted to get her approval, and I was reading her early versions of the book. And she also wrote, and she wanted me to perhaps include some of her writing in the book. And that's what we call her field notes. Okay, let me... I, I really I'm really touched by this passage, so I, I want to I want the listeners to to hear it. Field notes, March fifth. Now that it's a possibility, I have to decide about the transplant. I feel trapped with no way out. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. I am frozen in place. My hair is falling out. I'm down to ninety five pounds. I hurt everywhere, in my body and in my heart. 
Today I saw my daughter. We were driving down the road with the intention of going shopping. My only goal for the outing was to stay positive. But as I drove, I began to break down. And when we pulled over, I could no longer contain my crying. It goes on. I mean, this book is so touching. Why take this? Why, Why bring it to this format? Why write a book about it? Well, that's the question anyone who uh, is called by memoir asks herself or himself every day of writing. Um, You know, I kind of answer that question the way a mountain climber would answer, why would you climb that mountain in the middle of winter? Like, why would you do that? And they say, because it's there. And for me, the it that's always there um, are the deep, deep questions of life, life, struggle, suffering, joy, bliss, letting go, death. Uh, I'm, I, I, let me tell you, I would way prefer to write cookbooks or a book about knitting or something, but I am called to the deep. I always have been. I was as a child. And when I wrote my first uh, book, The Seeker's Guide. It's a very big book and it's very researched. But I also used my own life as a seeker, weaving through it. Not very much of my own life, but some. And people would say to me, Oh, I loved your book. Well, actually, I didn't read the whole thing. Actually, I just read those stories about you. And so I thought, Well, if I write another book, I, I probably, since I write about uh, the very deep human issues. I probably should write more about myself. So when I wrote Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, I ended up writing it as a memoir. And my difficult times, the biggest one I wrote about in that book was getting divorced and becoming a single mother. And um, lo and behold, much to my surprise, it became a New York Times bestseller And I was on Oprah several times, and suddenly all of my dirty laundry was flapping in the breeze uh, for everyone to read about. And it didn't really bother me about myself. I I don't mind revealing about myself, but I felt really bad for my family members and my friends, because when you write about difficult times, you end up writing about people. And so I vowed I will never write a memoir again. Like, I'm just sick of writing about myself. I feel sorry for my family. But I was wanting to write about this idea of authenticity, and I tried to write it as a novel. I tried to write fiction. I spent two years working on a novel. And now I look back at it and I think, oh, my God, I should have finished that novel because it was about a woman politician trying to be authentic in a world of disingenuousness. (laughs) And that would have been very relevant today. But I just couldn't (laughs) wrestle a novel. That form to the ground is just like not my form. And then when I went through this experience with my sister, um, each one of us trying to offer the other one our, our most authentic, clear, loving self, I thought, well, here's the form to write a book about the truth of authenticity. Like, what does it really mean to be authentic? 
And how can we do it with each other? Because if all we're doing in trying to become authentic is about me, 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 it, it, it's, I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in what would happen if we all related to each other from our core selves, didn't hide out from each other, weren't embarrassed about being who we were, were accepting of the other's authenticity. That's what I'm really interested in. So that's why I wrote the book. Oh, okay. okay. You're also a segue artist. You're you're going into Broken Open and Seeker's Guide, which I have questions for. Um, but let's let's stick with authenticity, okay. because this is this seems to be your main kind of message mm-hmm. that that you mm-hmm. seem to be relating here. Mm-hmm. So why don't we define that? What is how do you define authenticity? I define authenticity as a way of uncovering. It's a path. I don't think uh, one should hold out in front of oneself this idea that I will finally get to who I am and I will rest there and then I'll know. It's more a path of constant uncovering. At the very, very, very deepest core of who we are is something that I almost hesitate to talk about because it sounds kind of cheesy and unobtainable, and that's that we are all one. We are all a fabric together. But on the way to that, when we, we get out of the way, our shame of our body, our discomfort with our eccentricities, um, all the voices in our heads who tell us you're bad if you'd want that, you're good if you do that, all the way we've been conditioned to exist in family and culture, it's uncovering those voices and seeing, okay, some of them really may be me, but some of them aren't. Who am I if I really just allow that shining seed to take root and blossom and grow? Where would it lead me? What would I do if I was listening to that inner voice? So it's the great art of uncovering. And a beautiful thing about being an authenticity seeker today is that there's so many ways to conduct the search. Um, Psychotherapy to me is like a holy type of seeking, Um, trying to quiet the voices who who give us bad advice. Healing the body is a way of uncovering the soul because often what we've done is um, our, our, our physical ailment is actually a way of defending against what we're feeling. You know, a lot of people who say they overeat so they don't feel, they don't take care of themselves. Um, taking care of the body healing the body, making the body strong, making the body vibrant can be a way to uncover the soul. Um, and so can the traditional religious and spiritual paths. There was a, there was a Ted talk that you did that, uh, I found really remarkable. You, you said something that I found really remarkable. Um, at the beginning of the Ted talk, you said that there was within the room that there were 600 people 
but there's actually so many more because in each one of us, there's a multitude of personalities. Mm -hmm. And you said that uh, in yourself, you have two primary personalities that are in conflict and conversation. And uh, you call them the mystic and the warrior. Can you can you define that a little bit more for us? Yeah. Um, and actually, that sweet spot where the mystic and the warrior meet gets close to what I would call my authentic self. And that's often the case in people. Like, there are a lot of conflicting ideas and proclivities, and we're afraid to marry them all, see what would happen. So for me... Um, my mystic self, I was born with my mystic self, and by mystic I mean someone who allows the mystery of human existence to kind of work on me. And I've always wanted to explore the mysteries. Who am I? Where did I come from? How do I live while I'm here? Where do I go when I die? This is the mystic. The mystic is someone who fearlessly wants to explore those questions. So that's alive and well in me. And I was raised by social activists and intellectuals. And my parents truly believed and in their own life lived out this um, ethos of you must give back to the community. You must stay aware. You must work for justice my mother was very involved in anti-war and social justice movements. My father was a naturalist and an environmentalist. And I, I often think like I had like Rosa Parks and Henry David Thoreau as my parents. Like that's what we were raised to do and to be. So I took up very... Uh, with a lot of energy, that call to always give back to the community. But I also had this much bigger picture of, of human life, um, which was the mystic part of me. And when I got to college, I, I felt those two urges in diametrically opposed to each other. The mystic said, drop out of life, go become a nun, just follow the spiritual path. And the activist in me was very angry and in, it, at what was going on in the world. And I yeah. wanted to do something about it. So that idea of like, all is well, that's what the mystic feels. All makes sense. All is well. Don't stress. Don't worry. And then the angry one who wanted to do justice in the world, they have been in conversation my whole life. Yeah. Wow. So powerful. You know, I just, there's, you know, there's so much kind of advice and it, I mean, you, you've been around so many people who, and, you know, in your, in, in, at the beginning of this conversation, we kind of talked about, you know, how we're all kind of the same and we tend to put the people that we look up onto pedestals and uh, there's a lot of hero worship that happens there. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you notice that happens with yourself? Do you notice that happens towards you mm. with, from, from other people? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I, I'm shocked when it happens toward me 
And I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of naive about that on a couple of levels. One, I have worked so hard not to do that with other people. And I've had a great opportunity to make that a practice, not to put people on pedestals, not to do that because one, it's not the truth. No one, no human being, no matter how famous or rich or learned or wise or experienced, no one is immune to the struggle of being human. Everyone struggles. The wisest people have moments of of dark depression and despair. And the most famous and rich people can be miserably unhappy. I mean, I've met the greatest relationship experts in the world who are getting divorced. And I've met the, you know, organization guru whose car is a mess as she drives into the Omega parking lot. Like, it's just, (laughs) and this, this has never really upset me or, or made me cynical. It's more like, oh my goodness, human beings are a mess. We're all a mess and we're all trying And we're all looking for help. But just because someone can help you doesn't mean they've got it all sewn up. And I know this because I've met the greatest helpers in the world. So when people put me on a pedestal, I think it's kind of silly. But I also have become more and more comfortable with accepting the role um, of, of someone who has walked a few steps farther on this path. And and I do indeed have skills and wisdom to offer. So um, I try to hold it very lightly. Yeah, I agree. I, I really do believe that you have a lot of wisdom to offer. <laughs> and that's a very humble stance that, that you've taken on uh, your position on just uh, of, of holding other people in, in that regard. I, I love it. Um, so, I mean, Elizabeth, I mean, Omega Institute was, you started this in 1977. So it's 39 years ago. It's mm-hmm. like four decades. It, this is a long time running. I mean, what, what is your vision for this and what has been the vision for this and where is it, where is it kind of going in the, from here on? Well, fortunately for me, there's a whole crew of people now running Omega on a day-to-day basis. I used to live and breathe it and work it 24-7 in the very beginning. We didn't know what we were doing. We were a bunch of young people running after a dream, and um, it taught us everything we know, and we made no money and were real visionary zealots, and it has grown into a real institution, uh, and it has a very large staff now and other people who are running it, and they could more clearly tell you the vision for today, although I will I will tell you some things about that because I am involved still. Um, but what we always envisioned it to be and, and what we have always strived to make sure it maintains is a sense of community. You know, the the church or the synagogue used to be in this country like the place where people went at least once a week to feel part of something bigger than themselves, like a tribe, 
of explorers of the human condition. At least once a week you could go there and there would be inspiration and solace and tradition and ritual. And that just does not exist for most people anymore. And that is a human need, the sense to belong to a group of like-minded people exploring what it means to be alive. And we often joke at Omega, like our catalog comes out every year and there's more than 300 workshops and trainings in the catalog. And we joke that it's really one workshop and then we just stick different words in it. And of course, that's not true because there are things like learning acupuncture or learning African drumming or the whole thing in between. Um, But what we mean is that what people are really coming for is because Omega gives them an oasis in this supercharged world, this busy, busy, connected world, this world where you never put your cell phone down and you're working all the time and you're just trying to get through the day. Omega gives you a respite, an oasis where you can come and relax and disconnect a little and talk to people on a deeper level. People will always say to me, I met someone at lunch in the dining room, and I think I know her better than I know my best friends because we just immediately went deep together. And that's that's our purpose. It's always been our purpose to create a community of like-minded people who are learning and growing together. And, you know, over the years, different subject matters percolate up to uh, fit the needs of the culture. And over, the, I'd say, the past eight years, maybe, ten, I don't know, um, we have we have felt the need to do what we've called mo- the movement from me to we, mm-hmm. that we have really perfected workshops about taking care of yourself. And now we've really wanted to guide people toward self-care meeting up with care of our world which is in such need of of wisdom and care. And that's why a lot of our initiatives now, besides our regular workshops, which we maintain, are things like a lot of work for veterans, responding to vets coming home with PTSD and uh, working with them. We have a Women's Leadership Institute that um, is helping women learn how to trust their voice in leadership so that maybe we could do power differently. Mm-hmm. And another big part of our uh, curriculum is environmental work, training individuals and uh, municipalities and other constituents to have a lighter footprint. So, I mean, what has this taught you? I mean, it, so... I mean, you're not running it now, but you were, you co-founded it and you were the core of it for you know, a long time. So what did it, what did it teach you to organize something that now is affecting so many people? Um, well, let's see, you know, of course, on the most mundane level, it taught me quite a bit of the subject matter because my job for most of my years there was um, programming, choosing our faculty, and also writing our catalog. So I would have to take large books and turn them into pithy little two-paragraph 
descriptions of a workshop or a professional training. So I learned a whole lot about a whole lot of subjects from science and brain science and different religions and music and art. And so I, I have kind of an, uh, a broad knowledge of a lot of subjects. But um, I, think, I think what it taught me the most is the idea of working really, really hard for one thing. Um, really choosing something to focus on and giving it your all, all of your concentration and study and work and love. And, you know, people will often ask me, like, how do I find my purpose in life? That's a very loaded question. But my answer probably disappoints them, which is just pick something, something, even if it's a little close to your mm-hmm. heart and work on it for 20 years. <laughs> work on it really hard and you will be given so much. You'll give, be given way more than that one thing because there's a great joy in, in completion and seeing things to the end and doing something that serves other people. Um, so that's one of the big lessons for me is, um, picking something and sticking to it. I mean, it's the same thing as you could say for a marriage, um, that, that if you're always looking for that work to be the perfect thing before you commit, you're never going to find it. But if you commit to something that's pretty darn good, but not perfect, uh, you get to perfect yourself. Hmm. Wow. So profound. Um, so, you know, Elizabeth, I, it's, it's kind of hilarious to me sometimes because we get, we get a lot of emails here at the show and, uh, a lot of different types of feedback and, you know, people, people kind of just expect the show to kind of run. And even, even (laughs) when, even when the guests kind of come on, you know, just, they just expect everything to work properly. They have no idea that I'm, that I'm working, you know, like eight or nine different knobs here and making sure the levels are right. And and then all, everything that is behind the engine that, you know, that we're, we're kind of creating here. And is there something that, that you kind of connect that analogy to? Yes. Well, the first thing that comes up is, and and I've learned this from working at Omega with a lot of different people. We have a large staff. And when you're in a leadership position, um, the people who work with you really want you to know what they're doing. They want you to see what they're doing, not because they're narcissists, because as you say, People are always doing way more than you think they are. Always. What it takes to do one thing takes 40 things. And as I have stopped as a leader and turned around and looked at the people who work with me and really seen what they're doing so that they are seen and I know what my business really takes to run, it's a really important aspect of leadership. Uh, to do that with the people you employ, to really know what they're doing. And I, I, the, the law of work to me is that everything takes longer. 
and everyone is working harder than you think and give everyone that benefit of the doubt. Now, of course, there's always charlatans and lazy people, but most people are working their tail off and you just don't know it. Elizabeth, you know, we're we're about 40 minutes in to the interview and if there's one thing that you could kind of give to someone who's made it this far into the episode, <laughs> and what I mean what what is something that you would give someone who is, you know, struggling with self-doubt, has has trouble with finding sort of their life mission, someone who's struggling. I mean, what do you t- what do you tell to that? What do you say to that person? Well, the first thing I say, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, is that you are not alone. There is nothing uniquely screwed up about you. And that that secret shame we carry around that everyone else was given the instruction book, but we weren't, um, is really crippling. Because on top of the general difficulty of being human, we add this layer of everybody else has it figured out, we don't. You know, you know the um, poet Rumi, he always Favorite. talks about the open secret. And by that he means we, we all go around um, hiding this big secret from each other. And that secret is almost a joke because it's not really a secret. We all try to hide from each other that we wake up confused, that sometimes we fail. We are sad a lot. We don't know what to do. We don't know if we've made the right choice. Um, We struggle. We fail. We fall. But we try to hide that from each other. So you meet a friend on the street and you say, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And both people are not great. <laughs> they have something going on that's, that's, you know, hurting their heart. But since one said great, then the other says great. And then we walk away and both are thinking something like, God, I wonder why she has it all together. Or, oh, I bet her kids are all doing great in school. And, and it's... It's not that we need to all go around and complain to each other all the time, but by hiding the sense that we suffer, we miss out on real help and connectivity and intimacy, and and we have this secret shame all the time. And I really believe that letting go of that and owning your humanness with a sense of humor and a sense of belonging to this odd life we live are living, that is way more than half the end to the suffering. Um, Now, that's that's only half the way. But by putting down that burden of thinking that you're uniquely screwed up, all sorts of um, helpful hands come to help you, because suddenly you're just being a, a receptive human being. And there's a lot of help out there. And I, I feel it's like angels appear for the one who is vulnerable and open and real. And that may sound woo-woo, but I have experienced it in my own life. When I put down defensiveness and uh, disingenuousness, 
life rushes in to help me. So that's the greatest greatest advice I have. Yeah. Wow. Love it. You're really big on meditation. You have a a blog, a toolbox for daily life where you kind of just post stuff that uh, people can use. One of the things I guess you would say it would be medicine is meditation. Why is meditation so important? Well, for me, it's been really important. Some people get the same effect from other kinds of spiritual tools. So you don't have to meditate. But for me, meditation has been a tremendous friend. And I've done it so much now that I can access it in a second just by shifting my posture or breathing in a certain way. But it's uh, the kind of practice that you know, it's the word practice, like you practice to be a great basketball player by doing drills or scales on the piano. Meditation is a practice so that you can become skilled at the art of living. It's not, you don't meditate to like become the best meditator or have like the hippest yoga mat or something. Um, The practice of meditation is the, the best way I can explain it in a, in a quick way, is you look at the posture in the great iconography of religions, like the Buddha with his straight back, or Joan of Arc on the horse. Uh, lots of different religions have this same posture in their leaders, which is a strong straight back, a warrior back. But the front, the heart, is open and soft. And you see this both in Uh, paintings where you actually see the heart, like Mary uh, in her straight back and her blue veil, but her heart is illuminated. So the practice of meditation is a straight back, meaning I am strong Mm -hmm. and a very, very soft and open heart. And when I meditate after years of doing it, working with different teachers, what I do is I take that posture And I feel like I'm riding on a horse and I am so balanced and so strong in my back, but I'm so sensitive that I can feel even a tiny wind in my heart. And that's what meditation has taught me, how to be both strong and boundaried and clear and clean and also open and kind and good and compassionate and I can say those words and you can hear them intellectually, but the practice of meditation actually teaches you how to be both strong and soft. It's beautiful. It's perfect. That's one of the best definitions of meditation I've ever heard. Um, I want to, I want to give you the chance to kind of, if you could, if you could go back to the 25-year-old Elizabeth Lesser and give her one piece of advice, one one thing that you could tell her. Would there be, is there something that you would tell her? Well, you know that wonderful poem from Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, where he says, uh, it's in his little tiny book. It's a great book. It's called Letters to a Young Artist. I think that's what it's called. And he says, um, well, I can't tell you that now. He's, he's writing, he's probably 50, and he's writing to a 25-year-old artist, something like that. He's like, I, I can't tell you what to do, because you wouldn't be able to hear it, 
because that's not what you're supposed to hear now. You're supposed to be confused now. And then he tells him, live the questions now. And then one day maybe you will find yourself living into the answers. So I guess I would say to my 25-year-old self, like, don't be freaked out by those questions that are really freaky, I have to admit, of life and death and what should I do and who am I and who should I marry and should I stay married and just live really fully into those questions. Like, know that everyone has those questions and live them out and be fearless and brave and somehow trust that you will live into the answers. Oh, God, so beautiful. I I don't know how to ask anything else. I, I, it's just, <laughs> I think we should pretty much wrap it up there. Elizabeth, where can, where can people find your work, your website, the book? Well, my book uh, comes out on September 20th, 2016, my new book, Marrow. Mm-hmm. My other books are on Amazon and other bookstores, of course. And my website is... ElizabethLesser.org. Okay. Guys, uh, we have been talking to Mrs. Elizabeth Lesser. The book is called Marrow, A Love Story. comes out on September 20th. You can pick that up on Amazon and bookstores. Elizabeth is also going to be doing a book tour. Make sure you get to her website, ElizabethLesser.org, to find out where she's going to be if you're interested in seeing her. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is The Human Experience. We will see you guys next week.